Acts chapter 6 this morning. Uh, I tell you what, the thought just kind of hit me as they were singing and we were singing with them. Be careful that we don't take things for granted that we sing. Don't let them get old to you. Uh, if you were paying attention, guys, that's, that's some pretty radical stuff that we were just singing. That's some way out there, kind of bold, what right, who do you think you are, what right do you have to make such statements in your songs? And, well, we have a reason. It's because these songs were Bible-based. So I really enjoyed those this morning. That uh, Mighty Fortress, there's a whole story behind that song, and I hope you, if you don't know the story behind it, you ought to go learn it when Martin Luther wrote that back in the 1500s. Uh, this is a newer version of it. And then, speaking of newer version, I don't think I've, I've heard the song that was just before that one, just the, the one before that. And uh, I don't know if some of you may not even know what I'm talking about here, but as we were singing that, in my head, I kept hearing Guy Penrod singing that song. It was like, I've never heard it, but it's like, I hear him singing this song while I'm trying to sing the song. So, all right, good morning, good to see you. Acts chapter 6, here's what's going to happen because of the way last week broke down. Uh, we're going to end up needing, so I'm going to do two readings today, okay? We're going to read chapter 6, basically the same passage we had last week. We're not going to go into all the depth that we did last week. We're going to finish up, in essence, last week's message and then advance into chapter 7. So what that means, I'm going to start with the first part of the reading, give you the first two points, and then as we get ready to go into the third point this morning, then we'll read uh, chapter 7, its first eight verses there is what we're planning on doing, Lord willing. So here's the scene. Uh, the early church has hit a point, again, where it has grown so massively that the need for deacons has come along. And so I believe that that's what that's talking about there at the beginning of chapter 6. Uh, there was a contention and a complaint. So catch this. If, I'm going to refer to this slightly a little bit later. Do you remember what Hellenistic Jews were? That came into play. So Hellenistic Jews were those Jews that were from the dispersion. So Jews scattered around the world. They didn't live in the promised land, in the holy land, what we call Israel. But at this point in the church, some of these Hellenistic Jews had moved to Israel, apparently. And they were living in Jerusalem. And they got saved. And they were as part of the church. And long story short, as needs were being met and money and food was being dispersed to the widows of the various Jews, it seems like, or it was just stated this way, the local widows, the local Jewish widows were getting a better deal in the distribution than those that were from the dispersion. And we gave a few theories about that. And so the, the apostle's solution was, listen, this needs addressed. There is some neglect that is taking place. We didn't do it on purpose. We must keep teaching and preaching the Word of God because Jesus called us to do that. This ministry has grown and this need has grown. Search you out. Hey, church, you pick out seven men among you that meet these qualifications. And they did. And the saying pleased them. And they picked seven men. We'll start there in a moment in verse 5. That's of chapter 6. But really, I threw out last week, it seems like in the whole scheme of things, while Luke is writing the book of Acts, he not only does chapter 6, the start, to give us a little background about where deacons came from and what was their initial purpose, he also seems to use it mainly to introduce a couple of men. The first one here is going to be Stephen, so we can kind of see his story, what happens at the end of chapter 6 and dominates all of chapter 7. And then we're going to go into the second deacon that is named, named Philip, and that will kind of dominate chapter 8. So it seems like, hey, I'm giving you the historical background, but really I want to get to these two men that are two of the key men besides 
Peter at the beginning of the book and Paul at the end. Here's these two very important figures uh, that we need to study. And so now we're in the study of Stephen. Would you look at chapter 6, verse 5? Four things are going to be said about Stephen that he is filled with. He's full. Here's the idea. He has these things, these four things in abundance. These things are dominant in his life, so much so that when people think of Stephen... They identify him with these four things. He's controlled by them. He's consumed with these four things. Verse 5. What they said, hey, you search out among you seven men. You guys pick seven men. We'll appoint them. What they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of, here's the first one, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. He's full of faith. He's full of the Holy Spirit, consumed with faith, identified by faith. Again, controlled, dominated, and he's filled, controlled, dominated, consumed with, identified by the Holy Spirit. There's two great qualities. Move down to verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace, full of grace and power. And I kind of linked in my mind the power. What kind of power? Like real power. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. He's performing miracles And I believe that's tied, that power is tied to his great faith and his being full of the Spirit. It's all connected, and the Bible says he's full of grace, like full of grace. If you were to meet him, you'd just be like, why? Not just the grace of God on him, but the grace of God is coming out of this guy toward us. He's just a gracious person. Verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen... These were former Roman slaves who had been freed or their descendants. So there's these synagogues, Jewish synagogues in Jerusalem. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it is called, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians. So those are from North Africa that are now living in Jerusalem. The verse continues. And of those from Cilicia and Asia, what we now call modern-day Turkey. They, some, some Jewish people from that part of the dispersion, are also now living in Jerusalem. And the text says in verse 9 that some of these groups rose up and disputed with Stephen. So we found out last week, we noticed Stephen was a man of God. That was the key one, full of the Spirit. And we noticed he was a man full of faith, full of faith and power. And we noticed he was full of grace and truth coupled together. So great qualities about him. And obviously he's teaching. So he doesn't just have ministry with his hands as a deacon. He's also using his mouth because he has the gift of teaching, and he's using it in the synagogues. And some people, the Jews in the synagogues, some of them don't like what he's teaching, and so they disputed against him. But they ran into a problem, verse 10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. His content, his knowledge, his application of it, his knowledge of the Bible, just how he was able to just weave it all together. And either the Holy Spirit in him as he taught or the Holy Spirit engaging his own human spirit with such fervor and zeal and energy. It's just, he was effective. They they couldn't beat him. It was clear. Anybody watching, they may be pulling for these guys, but Stephen always wins. And so when you can't beat them, what do you do? Can't beat them, you cheat them. I wish it was they joined them. Some did join them, but we have this group. Some. Uh, y'all heard that, right? You can't beat them, cheat them. Y'all heard about that law firm, right? Beat them, cheat them, Dewey and Howe. 
they're, they're, they win a lot. They're, they're expensive, but anybody get in trouble, hire, beat them, cheat them, do we and how. And uh, anyway, move on. <laughs> verse, verse 11. Then, so they, they're going to go to corruption. They couldn't beat him. Then they secretly instigated men who said, so they pay these guys to say these things. And here's what they say. We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And again, he's not specifically saying, I hate Moses and I don't believe in God. It's not them specifically, Moses as the man or God as a person. They're offended because what he's saying is going against what is associated with Moses and what is associated with God. This man, Stephen, must be stopped. And so they hired these guys to say this. Verse 12, and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him, the idea quickly rushed upon him, and they seized him, the ideas violently, and they brought him before the council. So now Stephen is where John and, and Peter and Peter and John and all the apostles had been before. Here Stephen is now brought before the highest court in all the land of Israel. All 71, perhaps all 71 members are there. And here stands Stephen, and now he's accused. And what are the charges against this man? Why have you guys brought him in? Verse 13. They set up false witnesses. Remember, they're false witnesses who said... This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. So earlier it was very generic and vague. He's against Moses. He's against God. Now we know he never stops speaking against this holy place. And he's not just talking about this land of Israel or the city of Jerusalem. They're talking specifically he's against this place. He's against the temple. This man is against the temple. And he's against the law. The law of Moses. 14. Can you give us a little more specifics? For we have heard him say, here's what we've heard him say, that this Jesus of Nazareth implied nothing good is in Nazareth. And we know the Sanhedrin's agreeing with that. They hate Jesus. We've heard him, this, this Stephen, say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. And we'll change the customs that Moses delivered us. Why is he here? Here's the charges. We've heard him go around and he's teaching that this temple is going to be destroyed. And the things that go on in this temple, all the customs we've been doing for 1,400 and about 60 or 70 years now, they're going to stop happening that way. This guy's going out telling everybody this. He's teaching that this place will be destroyed and the customs we've been doing for over 1,000 years are going to come to a stop. So there's the charges. And then gazing at him, all who sat in the council, gazing means like they looked intently, they're staring at him. Gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And I'll confess to you, I really don't know all that that means, but we'll make a few comments. Number one this morning, would you notice this? Stephen is not only a, a great man of God and not only a man of faith and power and not only a man of grace and truth, but Stephen... This morning we'll notice Stephen was a man of great vision. He's a man of great vision. Kind of focus this morning on verses 11 to 14. What do you mean, great vision? What do I mean? What I mean here is this man. Say, Jeff, why did you last week hint that Stephen is really belongs on the short list of the great people in all the Bible? Guys, Stephen, it appears, all the signs and indications are that Stephen saw things more clearly, more quickly than maybe... Maybe anyone else, I, maybe, I assume he was ahead of, ahead of some of the apostles, perhaps in this. I can't guarantee that. But this man saw something. 
Now listen, you're at a disadvantage. That's kind of how I started the service this morning. Some of the things that we're going to, we're going to look at, and I'm going to propose to you that he may have taught if you've been in church and a Bible teaching church, you're kind of like, I already know that. Well, there's a reason you know that. They didn't have a New Testament. And we've been teaching it for 2,000 years. We've had the advantage of, what, of having the New Testament. We have this. But this man here seems to have really got it really before anyone else really did. If you're taking notes, would you write this down? So the charge are, he's against this place and he's against the law. I dare say that outside of God himself... Nothing was more sacred to the Jews than their law and the temple. Like this is the top of the list. Nothing's more sacred to them than the law. I mean, remember, the law is the one part that both the Pharisees and the Sadducees agreed. That's, now, that's the word of God. The Sadducees, they don't accept the Psalms and the, and, and the Proverbs and the poetry books and the historical books and all the prophetic books of the Old Testament. They don't accept that. But they all agree, oh, yeah, the law, that's God's word. So this is sacred and the temple. Now, I hope you paid attention a while ago because there's these people in these synagogues that are disputing with Stephen, and Stephen is one of the dispersed Jews. He's a Hellenistic Jew himself teaching among Hellenists. They're all Jews, but these are people that really have a lot of the Greek culture because they weren't raised in Israel. And so it seems like Stephen is one of them. If you're taking notes, write this down. The temple was so important to these Hellenistic Jews that they themselves had actually moved to Jerusalem. That's key thought. I want you to really get that. They're not just, these are not just like Jews in a synagogue 1,500 miles away from Jerusalem meeting and talking about the Bible and once a year make their way to Israel. This is not that saying, hey, you don't, hey, Stephen, you shouldn't be saying that about the temple over there in Jerusalem. No, this meant so much to them that they, they moved their lives to go to Jerusalem. Why would you go to Jerusalem? For the temple and what happens here and what it represents in the presence of God and all of these sacrifices. And so this was key, and here they feel like Stephen is attacking it. And again, when they couldn't refute him, then they cheated him. And they reverted to corruption. And ultimately, they're going to revert to physical force. Look, if you would, verse 13 again. Quickly look at it. Keep your Bible open this morning. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the temple. We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So, guys, I want to try to take a moment. What, is, what does this mean? We don't have word for word what Stephen taught Here's what we know. We have the charges against them, and we know that they're false charges because they're false witnesses. But I believe they're not, what they're saying here, their, their accusations are not just total fabrications. They're actually misrepresentations. Say that again. They're not just like total fabrication. Let's just make up something. Let's go out and say that he says this. No, it's how they are spinning and misrepresenting apparently what he has actually said. So I want you to get, guys go on a little journey with me real quickly. What has Jesus said about the temple? Well, we remember this. In John chapter 2, Jesus told the Jews, destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it again. And they get very offended. Like, this thing's been renovated for 40-some years. You think it's going to get destroyed and you'll build it back? But John, in chapter 2, tells us that Jesus was actually talking about what? What was he talking about? Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll build it again. He's talking about his body. Let's be clear. The greatest temple of God 
in the history of the world is the body of Jesus Christ. So he's talking about destroy my body and I'll raise it up in three days. He's talking about his resurrection, which he did. But the second thing I want you to notice about what Jesus said in that text in John 2 is this. If I were to tell you this morning, say, hey, throw that in the trash. Give you a piece of paper. Throw that in the trash. What is the subject of that sentence? Throw that in the trash. The subject is you, the understood you. Why am I brain? Watch. Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He never said, he's going, I'm going to, no, he said, destroy. You destroy this temple of my body, I'll raise it up. So they've, they've skewed that. That's not an accurate representation. They tried to bring that up against Jesus. It didn't stick. So I ask you this morning, did Jesus ever predict that the temple was going to be, the temple temple, the building was going to be destroyed? Did he ever predict that? And you'll not turn there, you'll not need to, it won't even be on the screen. But let me read Matthew 24. On the Tuesday of the Passion Week, they're leaving Jerusalem and some of his disciples look back and they're pointing out the, out the buildings to Jesus. He, he's he's going to die three days later. And in Matthew 24, verse number 2, hang with me, watch. He answered, but he answered, you see all these? Do you not? He's talking to his apostles. You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. You see all this? Oh, you guys love these buildings? I'm telling you, not one stone will be left upon another. Now, Jesus predicted that, but that was in private. That was a private conversation. So now I'm going to read between the lines about Acts chapter 6 and 7. Here's what I believe happened. Jesus says this in private. I believe that his apostles must have started talking about what Jesus said. Stephen, this is important, being a man of faith, he must have been in maybe a small group who hears this knowledge that the temple is going to be destroyed. And being a man of faith, he doesn't just believe in God, he believes God. And so Jesus is God. And Jesus says, the temple is going to be destroyed. So here's what Stephen does. That's going to happen. If he said it's going to, the temple is going to be destroyed. Now, Jesus never said he specifically is going to destroy the temple. He just says it's going to, and not one stone will be left upon another. And by the way, that's what you'll find today when you go to it. happened just like Jesus says in Matthew 24. I believe what happened is Stephen hears this, believes it, and he starts thinking. And no doubt God gives him revelation of what the implications of that mean. So I think this is what's happening. These false accusers are spinning something that he had actually said, but they're misrepresenting it how he said it. And so I want to propose to you this morning that Stephen was a great man of vision. He was one of the very first people to understand that the temple was going to be destroyed and think about why. And apparently he started declaring and teaching about why it was going to happen. He's one of the very first who understood the deep impact of the death of Christ. Yes, you say, yes, he died for our sins and we could go to heaven. That is great. But Stephen, a thinking man and revealed to him by God, no doubt, realizes, what does that mean about this temple? Because Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, the perfect, John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Stephen puts it all together and says, wait a minute, if Jesus, since he's the perfect Lamb of God, then what do we have this for? Now it is basically useful as a house of prayer. That's what it's good for now. Now, I'm going to have you write something, and I'm going to make a proposal. Last week I had two, I've added one this week, and I, I would not die for these, but I'm going to offer could it be possible that as Stephen 
is in these various synagogues or this synagogue. We don't know if it was one or five or how many, but he's in these synagogues. And as the word of God is taught and he stands and he starts proclaiming Christianity and all the ripple effects and the ramifications of the death of Christ and how it affects the nation of Israel and the temple, could it be that Stephen said or alluded to something in such a way that at least implied the following three things? Would you write them down? Perhaps he said this, hey, we do not need to offer more sacrifices. We do not need to offer more sacrifices. I don't know. Did Jeffrey, you saying Stephen stood in their synagogues and was he one of the first ones? To say, hey guys, listen, Israel, we don't need to offer more sacrifice. I'm not saying he said it. Maybe he did. My point is this. Maybe it went like this. Maybe he's teaching along and someone in the crowd's like, Stephen, dude, you realize what you're saying? If what you're saying is true, then we wouldn't need to offer more sacrifices. And maybe Stephen goes, And the whole crowd, oh, why did he just, he thinks we don't need to offer. That is old hat to you guys. You, the impact that would have had in this time period if they would have heard anyone and said, we've been doing this for 1,500 years. What are you implying? If you're taking notes, maybe write this one down. Could he have said this? Hey, guys, listen, the law of Moses cannot save us. It never has. It never will. The law of Moses can't save us. The one that hit me this week, and again, I wouldn't die for this. This would be a little more advanced. I'm going to offer it. Did Stephen perhaps say something to the effect of this? Hey, guys, listen. If you really want to know the truth, because when a person puts their faith and trust in Christ, God's Holy Spirit actually comes into their body in a real sense. A believer's body is the temple of God more so than Solomon's temple here in Jerusalem. And boy, had he said that one, I could really think they're, they're really mad at him. They're ready to take him down and put him before the Sanhedrin because he speaks against the law of Moses and the temple. As you're writing those three things, again, that's hypothetical, but I, I think that's the gist of what he's teaching. He's one of the first ones to see these thoughts Last week I proposed that it is quite possible and even probable that Saul of Tarsus, who we know as Paul, the apostle, would have been in these synagogue meetings. And these three things here are going to be very prominent in Paul's teaching. Maybe he heard it first from Stephen and he couldn't refute him. And so Paul is going to apparently be involved. He's definitely involved in what's going to happen to Stephen. Just before I finish this first point, move to the second Stephen's a great man of vision because he realizes the primary purpose of the law. What's the primary purpose of the law? Why did God give mankind the law? And here I'm talking about the moral law. Stephen realizes the primary purpose of the moral law and the primary purpose of the temple. He sees them clearly and the ramifications. So I ask you this morning, think in your mind, why did God give mankind the law? Did he give us a list, don't do this, 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 and this, and make sure you always do this? Is it so that we will keep that, and by keeping that, we'll be saved and we get to go to heaven? You do all these things, and you get to live with me forever in heaven. Is that why God gave us the law? No. Why did God give us the law and the temple? If you're taking notes again, Stephen was one of the first ones to realize the primary purpose of the law was not to save us. It was to expose our sin. And the primary purpose of the ceremonial law, all the sacrifices, was to point to Jesus Christ as God's solution for sin. So the law 
The moral law is given. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do that. One of the verses uh, in the exchange in our handout in our bulletin this week is sin is lawlessness. God gives us even the Ten Commandments. Who on earth can say they've never coveted, they've never lied, they've always obeyed and honored their parents? None of us can say that. Who here this morning could say, I have never taken the name of the Lord in vain. I have never lusted. I've never taken anything that wasn't mine. Who am, none of us can say those things. So the law is given to, to get us lost, to expose our sin. Why all these sacrifices? To save us? No, not to save us. To point to Christ as the ultimate sacrifice, the true Lamb of God. It's this. Stephen realizes Jesus is the true substance. All those other sacrifices were just temporary shadows and pictures. My pastor years ago used to say it like this. If your loved one is away and you're missing them, and you look at their picture and their photo, and that brings you comfort. But if your loved one is home, why would you still sit there and just adore their picture when they're sitting right there with you? Hey, so you're, you're at dinner like, man, you're really not talkative. Not, I ain't got time. I just love this picture. What's the picture of? It's a picture of you. I just really, yeah. I, no, put that away and focus on the real person. Stephen is like, this has been great. Can I say it this way, guys? The law. This part of my Bible, this part of your Bible, this Old Testament, it's good. It is good, but it has a defect. You say, wait a minute, is it good or does it have a defect? No, it's good. The law is good, but it has a defect. Its defect is that it is conditional. The condition is that we have to keep all these rules. The condition is we, that, that the Jews had to offer these animal sacrifices. Did the animal sacrifices actually save them from their sin? No. No one, let's be clear, no one in the Old Testament who died, even offering sacrifices, when they died, actually went to heaven. They didn't go to heaven. They went to a place called paradise, Abraham's bosom. Why? Waiting on the true, one, ultimate Lamb of God to die on the cross. Stephen sees this like, now that he's come, we don't need all that anymore. We don't need to offer more sacrifices. Our bodies are now the temple of God. The Holy Spirit's not behind that curtain anymore. When Jesus died on the cross, the curtain was torn in two. You guys can try to sew it back up, but God's presence is now in, in the bodies of believers. We don't need to offer more sacrifices. No doubt that got him in a lot of hot water. Number two, did you notice Stephen was also a man of courage? Verse 15, Stephen was a man of great courage. And gazing at him, so what are the charges? They brought the charges. Gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So here they are staring. I'm imagining it going like this. And they're hearing these guys. Yeah. And? Really? Really? And they keep looking at him. And they're expecting to see this wicked, evil man. But what they're actually seeing doesn't match. And this is no doubt baffling to them because he has the face of an angel. And I don't know fully what that means, but this is what's happened. Stephen was such a man of great faith that here he is all by himself defending his faith. He's literally staring at death, death itself. He's probably, I think, no doubt, within an hour. He's down to the last hour of his life. Perhaps he knows this. Maybe he doesn't. But here he is by himself, surrounded by all these people who hate Jesus, Alone, don't just discount that because tomorrow when you're the only one in the plant and the other eight people in the break room, you know we're not Christians and you're the only one and Christianity comes up and you get all shy, don't just blow off. 
that Stephen doesn't. Stephen is such a man of faith. He's ready to defend his faith all alone and staring at the face of death. He's a great man. But his face is really causing them some problems. The ESV Study Bible writes it this way, quote, There was apparently, we don't know, there was apparently a visible manifestation of the brightness of the glory of God. Not the brightness of the glory of God, a visible manifestation of the brightness of the glory of God on his face as there had been with who? Who had that? Moses. So I don't know fully what verse 15 means. They're staring at him and saw his face as it was like the face of an angel. I don't think it means. It's a good-looking dude there, ain't he? Yeah, he is. Yeah, he's pretty sharp, right? Yeah, he's a sharp guy. That's not what they're doing. They're like, he says something about him. And it is powerful, and it's witnessing, and it's winsome. Clearly, this man's been with Jesus like Moses had been with God. Whatever verse 15 means, we at least know it means this. He didn't look guilty, and he doesn't look afraid. He didn't look guilty, and he doesn't look afraid. I think that's our note next. Can we have that one up quickly because we're moving to the next one? Thank you. So here's this man accused of dishonoring Moses, and God's honoring him with a face that's shining like Moses. What a great gift God gave him in his final hour. As we move down to the third point, do I have the text next? Grace, I forget. Do I have the point or the text next? The point. Number three. Let's move on. Moving now into chapter seven. It's going to take us weeks to be in this. Number three this morning. Stephen presents lessons from Abraham. So Stephen is a man of God. He's a man of faith and power. He's a man of, of grace and truth. And he's a man of great vision. Great vision. He saw things before anyone else did. He saw it clearly, more clearly than anyone else did. And here's this man of great courage. And yet now we're going to jump into chapter 7. And we see Stephen presents lessons from the life of Abraham. Would you join me in verse number 1? And let's now begin a new chapter. So having heard the, heard the charges, the high priest said, Are these things so? Again, looking at him. Hey, Implication, I'm going to read between the lines. Are these these things so? Well, I hope for your sake they're not. You're going to be in big trouble if they are. Are these things so? And Stephen said, notice the respect. Get the respect. is, is, Is his opening line a little symbol of his age perhaps? Brothers and fathers. Some of you here on the council, you're my age. We're like brothers. And some of you are older. And he's giving the respect. Brothers and father. Hey, are these things so? Brothers and fathers, hear me. Hear me. Hear me out. This is important. I want you to really hear. Don't stop listening to what I'm going to say. Hear me. And here he goes. Let's read verses 2 to 8. Are these things so? Brothers, fathers, hear me. The God, the God of glory appeared, the God of glory appeared to our father, Abraham. The God of glory appeared to our father, Abraham, when he was in Mesopotamia. This is important. 
Can we review, as Stephen's saying? Can I just cover some things? Can I give an overview? You want to know my answer to these charges? I can't give you just a yes or a no answer. Some of what they're saying, I, I have been talking about these things. How they're representing it is not how I would represent it, but I can't just give you a yes or no answer. I need to tell you why I've come to this point in my teaching. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. He's looking at a room full of Jews. This is our father Abraham. We all know him. The God of glory appeared to Father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Before he lived in Haran. First in Mesopotamia, here. Then he appears to him again up here. Keep moving. And said to him, God talking to Abraham, Go out from your land and from your kindred. Abraham, go out from your land, your country, and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Here's this two-part command. Leave here and go here. He doesn't know where he's going, but we know you need to leave here. And you're going to go up like this, and you're going to come down here. Two parts. So what does Abraham do? Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans. That's where Mesopotamia was. And lived in Haran. Catch that. Did the Sanhedrin already catch what Stephen is subtly doing? Hey, is it true what you're saying about this place? Hang on. Can I start here? The God of glory appeared to our father when he was in Mesopotamia. Before he went to Haran, he told him, leave this, come here, and he leaves. And he goes here. Verse 4. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land. In which you are now living. Talking to the Sanhedrin. Hey, then he moved him into this land where we're all at right now, Sanhedrin. What happened when he got there, finally? Yet he, God, gave him, Abraham, no inheritance in it. Not even a foot length. Not even a foot's length. But he promised to give it to him. So he finally gets there. And he doesn't actually inherit it immediately. He gives him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after. Abraham, all this, see this land? I'm giving it to you and to his offspring, to your offspring. Though he had no child. He has no child, and he's saying, I'm giving you this land and your offspring, though he had no child. And God, because he's God, knowing the future, spoke to this effect, that his offspring, Abraham's offspring, would be sojourners. Abraham, your offspring, there will be sojourners in a land belonging to others. Your offspring are going to be sojourners, visitors, guests, pilgrims, in a land that actually belongs to others. Who would enslave them? He's telling Abraham they're going to enslave them and inflict them. Not for a little while, for 400 years. That's a rounded number. It ends up actually being 430. But God says in verse 7, remember... I will judge Abraham, but I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. So here's the recap. Abraham, you're here. This land is going to be given to you and your descendants. Right now, you don't have any kids, but it's going to, that's what's going to happen. But here's also what's going to happen. Your descendants are going to be carried, or you're, they're going to go down. Something's going to happen, and they're going to sojourn in a foreign land a, a, another land that is not theirs, and then it's going to turn into slavery, and it's going to turn into affliction. It's going to be for 400 years, but then I'm going to judge that nation, and then I'm going to bring them out, and they're going to live here, and they will worship me here. And verse 8 covers a massive amount of time. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. 
And so Abraham became the father of Isaac. That's a long story. And circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob. That's its own story in the book of Genesis. And Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And that's the most twisted story out of all verse number eight. That Jacob fell on. Boy, he's, he's something else. Uh, you ought to read that sometime. By the way, we will not be taking four months off of our study of Acts to track down all of these texts and to do an exhaustive study of Genesis and Exodus. We've, that's not the point. We want to glean what is Stephen trying to get across. Look at verse 1. So Stephen's going to use present lessons from the life of Abraham. The high priest said, are these things so? This is a long chapter. It's the longest sermon in the book of Acts, guys. Some people have accused Stephen of not answering the high priest's question, of just rambling and going into a historical town, uh, account, a lot, of, a lot of nonsense, a lot of like, what's the point? Guys, here's what's happening. Stephen is not being aimless and reckless and random. What he's doing is he's answering the high priest's question. He's going to show him, by, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a flyover. We're not going to linger long, but we're going to see the big picture of what God has been doing among our people. And, and Stephen's going to put just enough details within the story to kind of show here's why Christianity is the next movement of what God is doing among people around the world. Here's why I've been saying what I'm saying. And so here's the big picture, but here's some details in among it. And what Stephen starts with is hear me. And I'm going to ask you as we go through the, Acts chapter number 7, like Stephen, what Stephen's telling the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin, listen, I know you know all these facts. I know you guys know all these facts. Sanhedrin, you study the law. We all agree this section is the word of God. You know the facts, but have you ever pieced them together and strung them together and connected them and connected the dots just the way that I'm going to do here? And I dare say they had never heard it like Stephen is going to connect the dots. And here's this man full of grace. Even I, I no doubt how he's delivering this is very gracious. Brothers, fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he went to Haran. Have you thought about that? What that means? And off he goes. But ultimately, let me tell you this, he's heading to verse 51. So he's gracious, but he's going to give the truth. What's verse 51? You stand. Talking to the Sanhedrin, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law delivered by angels and did not keep it. You, circle, you always resist the Holy Spirit just like your fathers did. So that's his punchline. That's where he's heading. But he begins with verse 2. Write this down. Stephen notices that God's dealing with Abraham illustrates several lessons. I'm going to start with three this morning. There's more. But really these three spring from verse 2. Are these things so? Brothers, will you hear me out? Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. What's Stephen's point? Number one. And by the way, please hear, this is extremely important. You say, Jeff, why would we take time to study this? Why should anyone take time? Abraham's life, Abraham's relationship with God, Abraham's salvation 
It's like a microcosm. It's a pattern. It's representative, listen, of every person who has a relationship with God. Abraham's relationship and salvation is representative of all other relationships with God. Like what? Well, we learn three things right off the bat out of verse number two. Number one, we learn that God's blessing is not attached to a single location. God's blessing is not attached. Is it true? Are you against this place? Are you against the law? Well, hey, let's start here. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when? When he was in Mesopotamia. Before he got here. Hey, I love this place. I love Jerusalem. I moved here. I'm for it. I'm not against the temple. It's just, ugh. You've got to broaden and realize what God is doing. God is not limited to here. God's not limited to his favor and blessing being on just one location. Have you ever heard this? Have you ever heard this or even something like it? Maybe you've done it. Yet, has anybody in here had this mindset? Hey, you shouldn't be cursing down at the church. Don't need to be cursing at the church. It's God's house. Oh, curse when I'm away from here. Right, right. Hey, I, 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 I will, don't, don't be smoking down there at the church. Abuse your body at home. Waste your money at home. Ouch, did I just say that? I did, I think I did. Yeah, God's money's been used for this place, but God's not limited to a place. His blessing, His favor. And that's what Stephen wants them to start seeing. Hey, you know, it started in Mesopotamia long before here. Number two, Stephen wants them to understand that God initiates all relationships with Himself. God initiates all relationships. Anybody that has a relationship with God, God initiated the relationship. God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. And then number three, all people, all people are in sin when God initiates these relationships. We sang it just a while ago. It was like the second or third song. I forget which it was. But it was while I was still in sin, he loved me. So let's culminate those three things. God's not limited to a certain place. God always initiates relationships with him. Those who have it, he initiates it. The people he initiates relationship with, they're always in sin when he initiates the relationship. And so let's put that all together with this other separate note. Stephen's point, hey, Sanhedrin, listen, I'm not, against, I'm not against our people. I love our people. This is great. What we've got to be is honest. Our father, Abraham, our descendant, our forefather, our patriarch, he was not searching and seeking for God. It's not like Abraham was out looking for God and God saw there's this one guy and boy, he just keeps looking for me. That guy's diligent. I like that fella. You know what? I'm going to, I'm going to make him and his descendants my favorite people. I really like him. No, Abraham was not seeking for God. In fact, because I want you to understand why I'm using this note. Joshua chapter 24 verse 2, Joshua said to all the people, quote, thus, hear it, hear it. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago. He's, so jo Joshua's talking to the people of Israel. Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor. And they served other gods. Hear it again. Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor. And they served other gods. They they didn't serve another God. They served other gods. So here's Abraham, Stephen's point. He's minding his own sinful business in Mesopotamia, polytheistic, 
an idolater in Mesopotamia when God decided to invade and interrupt his hellbound life. That's what Stephen wants them to get. Our forefather, he's bound for hell, worshiping. The historical evidence shows they were worshiping the moon god. That's one of them. Abraham's worshiping the moon god, and here comes the real god and shows up. And God initiated a relationship with a man far from the temple. It's a thousand years, a thousand miles, I'm sorry, not a thousand years, a thousand miles from where the Sanhedrin's sitting is where God initiated a relationship with the very first Jew of them all, the patriarch Abraham. So I skipped something earlier. Can I, you guys got that? We can put that back up in a moment. Grace, was there a map on there? I skipped. Look at the map right quick. Would you look at this? Do you see it? So over here on the right is Mesopotamia. Down at the bottom, you see the Persian Gulf all the way to the edge. Ur is right below the word Babylonia. And so God calls Abraham from Ur. He goes up to the top of what they call the Fertile Crescent. This ends up making a boomerang. And so this is the journey of Abraham. He ends up going up to the top of that to a place called Haran. He stays there for a while. When his father dies, then he comes down into the area that we call Israel. And so what Stephen wants him to understand, this is where it all all happened. He's over here in a very modern place, and God calls him to a less modern place. And while he's there, he's polytheistic and idolatrous, very offensive to God. And yet God finds Abraham and sets his sights on him there. He wasn't looking for God. Romans chapter 3. Flip over there. You got your Bible? It's not that far away. Romans chapter 3. It's the next book in your Bible. Look at Romans chapter 3. Stephen's points that Abraham wasn't a great guy. Romans chapter 3, and Abraham's representative, a microcosm of all people who have a relationship with God. Romans 3, verse number 9, Paul writes the following. So what then? Are we Jews any better off? In other words, do we Jews have any advantage? Is there any advantage to being a Jew? He had just said earlier in chapter 3 and in chapter 9, I will tell you this, Paul is going to say there are some advantages. The advantages are the Jews had the Bible. They had these oracle, these covenants. They had the patriarchs. They had the tabernacle, the temple, the glory of God. They had the worship. They had those advantages. But as far as Jews themselves, like the actual persons themselves, verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already, in chapters 1 and 2, we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, Greeks representing everybody else that's not a Jew, we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. We're all under the guilt of sin. We're all under the penalty of sin. Verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous. But aren't the Jews, aren't they like inherently holy? No, none is righteous. No, not one. What about Abraham? No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Together they've all become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. You would think. Surely of all the billions of people there was one. No, not one. Outside of Jesus. Makes that clear in chapter 5. No, never. Not one. And Abraham was no different. God interrupted his hellbound life. I have two more little texts, I think, within our message today. And I really want you to turn here. Would you go to Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy 7. This one's important. So years ago, my pastor, I remember him reading this, and it struck me. 
And he gave credit to Chuck Swindoll because my pastor heard it on the radio from Chuck Swindoll. And I cannot teach it how my pastor did nor how Chuck did, but we'll try to get the gist this morning. Deuteronomy, it's the 39th year of the wilderness wanderings. It's year 40 in essence. They're about to go into the promised land. Deuteronomy chapter 7, look at verse 6. So Moses writes, and what he's saying, hey, we're about to go in the promised land. Listen, don't let your sons marry these Canaanites' daughters. Don't let your daughters marry the Canaanites' sons. They're going to try to get us to serve and worship their gods. Don't let them corrupt us, verse 6. Israel, for you are a a people. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. You're the treasure. Don't you go in there and just mingle with them. We're separate. We're special, Israel. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. He continues, verse 7, Moses writes, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. We just sang about I am chosen, I am not forsaken. He loved us. We just sang this. Hey, Israel, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. Verse 8, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Do you see what he just did? This is very strange. And Swindoll pointed it out. My pastor heard it, passed it on to me, and I'm going to pass it on. It's been, we've done this before, but it's been a few years looking at this text. When we go in there, don't you intermingle. You are treasured. You're holy. You're special. You're God's treasured possession. Hey, Israel, he didn't pick you because you were the biggest. You're actually the smallest. Again, look in the middle of verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people. The Lord set his love on you and chose you. You were the fewest. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. So why? In verse 7 and verse 8, why did God love the Jews, Abraham first, And choose them, Abraham first. Why did God love and choose the Jews? I remember teaching this years ago. And there may be a few students in here that I would do this. And I'll not do it with you because it was actually kind of smart aleck and passive aggressive the way I would teach it. I'd say, I'd, I'd, I'd read it over and over and over, over and over and over. And then I'd say, all right, who knows the reason God chose Israel and loved them? Why did God choose them? Why did he love them? Yes. Well, it's because that's, that's exactly right. Who else? Who else? And they look and they look. Well, it's because that, 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 you got it. And the other, what you, uh, to verse 8, it looks like he chose them and loved them because I said, yes, you got it. Y'all know what we're saying, right? The Lord God loved Abraham and chose Abraham because Would you write that down? That's what verse 8 teaches. He didn't love you. Verse 7, he didn't love you for that reason. That's not why he did it. Verse 8, he loves you and chose you because he loves you. Like, what? Hey, Israel, God loves you and chose you because he loves you. 
And I know the text says because he's kept the oath that he made with Abraham, but why did he ever make the oath in the first place? Because he loved him and chose him. Why did he love him and chose him? He loved him and chose him because he loves him. And that's a circle. So wait a minute. God, why did you love me and choose me? God's answer? Because. That's not a reason. That's what you get. No, 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 really, God, why did you, watch. God, why did you love me and choose me? And over here, this person, they're not going to be saved. Why? Is it because you knew I was going to be a good Christian? No. No, no, don't even think it. It's because I'm big and strong and I'm great. No, nothing to do with you. Why did he choose Abraham? Abraham was an idolater, pagan, polytheistic. God loved him and chose him just because God loved him and chose him. Just because. Because I want to. It has nothing to do with you. It is everything to do with God's choice. He is for me, not against me. Nothing to do. I know what I was. I was not a good person when God appeared to me. Been living Bible camp just outside of Asheville, North Carolina in 1979. He appeared on Monday night and he appeared again on Tuesday night. And he just broke me down on Wednesday night. Stephen knows it's a good idea, it's a good thing, take this note, to be a physical descendant of Abraham, that's a good thing, but he knows that Jews are not innately special. And he knows the reason God loved and chose them is simply because. Back to Acts chapter 7, quickly. Acts chapter 7. Verse 3. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Remember the map that you saw. Remember the map. And he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Guys, is that real clear? That's a two-part command. Do that. Leave here and go. In verse 4, then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans. Write this down. This, I hope somebody here, maybe if you're watching online, you're not a Christian yet. I'm going to invite you really tune in right here. If you're not a Christian, just think about this. Salvation, what is it? If you are a Christian, I want to invite you to reflect and recall, and maybe you think, I've never thought of it that way. Abraham's life is representative of our life, and here's a lesson that we learn. Salvation is God's call. It's his invitation to an eternal journey with him. Abraham, yes, I'm going to make you a great nation. Leave these people and go to a land. Where? Just start going and I'll lead you there. Salvation is God's invitation to an eternal journey with him. He calls people, leave behind your old life. Here's the call of salvation. Leave behind your old life. Leave behind everything you thought was really important. Just leave that behind and come with me and pursue a better life that I promise I'm going to give to you. Abraham, come on, leave all that and come with me. And Abraham, okay. Off he goes. And that's when he got saved. He believed God and he got saved. God's calling his people. The call of salvation is a call to join him on an eternal journey. And it's exciting. 
If you've never been saved, I want to invite you to think of this for a moment. There are many reasons to get saved. When I got saved at nine years old, I'll tell you straight up, I didn't want to go to hell. There are better reasons to get saved. Here's a better reason. Put your faith and trust in Christ because he's already proven he loves you. He is for you. As the eternal son of God, God himself, he came to earth and became a human being so that he could die a sin-bearing cross death for you. He has proven his love for you. That is reason to put your faith and trust in Christ. But here's another reason. Here's another reason. Eternal life will be the abundant life. So if you're not yet a Christian, I want to ask you to be honest with yourself. Do you ever catch yourself being bored. Is there anyone here listening this morning? You ever catch yourself being bored with what this world has to offer? You ever catch yourself being discontent with what this world has to offer? Then I want you to be reminded hell, on top of its many torments, never produces and offers even a moment of hope or exciting joy. Or surprise, a pleasant surprise. Never. So if this life bores you and you find yourself discontent here, this is way better than hell. But God offers an abundant, eternal life of joy and excitement, surprise. Think of it this way. God created sight, what we call seeing. He created hearing. He created touch and feeling. I like like that feeling. He created taste. He created smell. God created all of the senses. And I want to propose to you, Grace, at its very best, all of those senses are being experienced under a curse. And that curse is going to be lifted throughout eternity. So we're going to have all of that unhindered by the curse. But I'm just thinking, do we really think when God created all things and when he invented and created this whole thing called sight and hearing, and we love to look at beautiful things. You do. You love to look at beautiful things. You like hearing beautiful things. You like feeling good things. You like tasting good things. You like smelling good things. Did God exhaust his creative abilities when he made those five senses? I dare say he's just getting started. Come on the journey. Come on the journey. Abraham, leave that. This seems important. Now leave that. Come with me. I've got something better. And I promise I'll give it to you. I have just a few more thoughts for you this morning out of Acts 7. Confession time, okay? I didn't read this anywhere, I don't think. Not this time. I didn't notice it. I read several sources. I don't think I'm missing this. I don't know why no one else that I read. I'm sure a bunch of other people have put stuff out there, if, if I'm on the right track, then I'm sure many have talked about it. But this seems to be, I want to stick to why is Stephen doing this? What's he after? And I believe Stephen's trying to get the Sanhedrin to realize something about them as a nation and about their first patriarch. And it isn't all glowing. He's a pagan idolater, Mesopotamia, and God initiated. Did they get the point? I don't know. But here's one I noticed. Would you look at verse 2? It's real clear. 
The God of Abraham, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred. That's number one. Very clear. Go out from your land, from your country and your kindred. Number two, go into the land that I will show you. Then he, yes, he went out from the land of the Chaldeans. And the rest of the Bible teaches that when Abraham heard this call of God, he believed. So he went out of the land of the, of, of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. So he comes out of here, he believes God, he gets saved here, and because he believes and because he gets saved, he responds. So he hears the promise, he hears the call, he believes it, and he obeys it. And he goes up here, and he stops with his father. He's ultimately headed here. He's going to make it here, but he stops here. What is real clear in Acts chapter 7, Stephen helps us, is to realize the call of God actually came twice to Abraham and that by necessity. He heard the call here. He responded. He was actually saved. But then he stopped short of full obedience. So he he believes and he obeys, but he doesn't fully obey. I don't know why. I want to go back. Hey, why did y'all stop there? It's about a thousand miles roughly, very rough, from here to here. Why'd you go up about 500 and stop? I don't know. I don't know that the Bible really says. In fact, if you only had Genesis, the end of 11 and 12, it would sound like Abraham and Terah, his father, and his nephew Lot and Sarah, like they leave and they come up here. It sounds like God appears here and then he says, I'm going to make of you this great nation. But the ESV is correct. If you want to go on your own time and read Genesis 12 verse 1. And the Lord said, which means the Lord had said. So it actually happens here. And then God repeats it up here. Why does God have to repeat it up here? Because he had stopped short. But God is patient. And he appears to him again. And I think Stephen's wanting the Sanhedrin to realize. God's patient and he stuck with Abraham. He was saved. But he stopped short. And here's what I find. It's real easy as a Christian To believe the Lord Jesus, put your faith in Him, and you get started. But along the way, you stop. You just kind of get stuck somewhere. Is there anybody, don't raise your hand, is there anybody watching right now and listening this morning, and you're like, in my Christian life, I'm just kind of stuck. I'm kind of like Abraham there at Haran. And I find that's easy for all of us to do, but God's persistent. He doesn't stop. He calls Him again. Maybe this morning is God calling you again. And this thought hit me this week. It's tempting to be like Abraham and only go part way. I'm not talking about part way toward salvation. I'm talking about part way toward the journey, the sanctification, the Christian life that God really wants. It's very easy to do that and it's tempting. And sometimes on our journey, like with Abraham, a death has to occur before we're really ready to go further. I told you I had two more places. Here's the last one, Colossians chapter 3. Would you flip over there, Colossians 3? Sometimes along the journey, like Abraham, a death had to occur before Abraham's really ready to go back on and continue where the Lord was calling him to. Colossians chapter number 3. This is for Christians. This section is for Christians. Colossians 3 verse 1. If then, Paul writes, if then you have been raised with Christ, if you're a Christian, then you have been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above. Hey, Christian, if you've been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above. 
Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. You're in Christ, seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your minds. You hear this morning, you're thinking, I just let my mind go where it wants to go. I just kind of have random thoughts. Or I just kind of scroll along and let whatever comes up there, I let them decide where my mind's going to go. Oh, there's a nice little thought. Oh, that's cute. That's a cute picture. What Paul says, if you've been risen with Christ and you're seated with Christ and he's in the heavenly, set your mind. Like intentionally set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died. You have died. When Christ died on the cross, if you're a Christian, you were in him. You died to sin on the cross. I'm bringing in Romans 6, I realize. Romans 6 isn't clear here, but I'm confident Paul is alluding to the truth of Romans. Look at verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So there's Christ in God, and you're in there. Your very life is tied to, attached to Christ. For you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is where you're headed on this journey. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sensual immorality is in this room right now. Sensual immorality is in this room among Christians right now. It's whipping some of you. Impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. I'm stuck. I'm not moving forward. I've kind of been here three or four years. What needs to die before you're ready to move forward and move deeper with God? This morning, I pray the Holy Spirit will say, is it covetousness? Your mind is constantly discontent. You're always thinking about things of the world. Your mind is not set on things of God. It's got to die. i got more for you. Keep coming. Amen, Jeff. Back to Acts. What needs to die? I'm stuck. Verse 5. By the way, we're not going all the way to 8 today. Just kind of give you that. Okay. Look at verse 5 quickly. So he gets him back on the journey, yet he gave him no inheritance. He finally brings him down into the land where the Sanhedrin was right then sitting. Yet God gave him no inheritance, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him. A promise as a possession and to his offspring after him. F.F. Bruce writes this. Let this sink in, please. Abraham, he gets to the promised land. Abraham has no tangible object in which to trust. Abraham, God didn't come to Abraham in, in Ur of the Chaldees in Mesopotamia. Abraham, yeah, come here. Yeah, okay, I'm God. Okay, look at this manual I've got. Look at these beautiful places. Let me show you some pictures. This is all yours. In fact, scrap the book. I've got video. What's video? Don't worry about it. Look. This is you. Look, this is all yours. Come with me. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, I'm in on that. No, that's not what happened. What does he have? And when he gets there, Bruce is correct. Abraham had no tangible object in which to trust. He believed the bare word of God and acted on it. I like that phrase. It may not hit you that well. Bruce points out that Abraham believed the bare word of God and acted on it. It's just hanging there. How do I know? Here's all you have. You have my word. 
You have my character. You have my truthfulness. You have my promise. That's all you have. But I can't touch that. Listen, a while ago it was for Christians. This is if you're not yet a Christian. That's how you got to get saved. The only way to get saved, all you have is the bare word of God. It just hangs there. It, it's hanging there this morning. It's always hanging there. That's how you get saved. You can't see God if you're waiting to see God, if you're waiting to see and touch forgiveness, if you're waiting to see heaven, you're never going to make it. What you have is the promise of God just hanging there. God says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God says, whoever believes in my son will not perish but have everlasting life. All you have is the bare word of God. That's what you get. The Bible says in Romans 10, 13, everyone... Every, not me, you don't know how bad. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's hanging there. It's all you have is the bare word of God. Write this down. God promised land for Abraham and his descendants when three things were, were the situation. Number one, he had no children. And God's promising land for him and his descendants. Number two, his wife Sarah was barren. And number three, they're old. And here God's talking about descendants and offspring and the land. And I you got to imagine, is Abraham wondering, God, man, that's awesome. That is great. You keep talking about offspring and descendants. You know, before I have offspring, I'd have to have children. And I don't even have a child. I don't have a child at all. And yet God, knowing the end from the beginning, says, this is yours. This is what I'm giving you. My last thought this morning. We'll not hit your last note, and I hope that doesn't frustrate you. We'll pick it up there next week in verse 8. Look at verse 6 and 7. Here's our last thought. Look at verse 6. And God spoke to this effect. So he doesn't even have land yet. And God said, hey, by the way, Abraham, not only do you not actually get the land. It's yours, Abraham. It is yours. Listen. Everybody listen. This is yours. It's actually yours. Technically, it is yours. You're not enjoying it yet, but you are going to enjoy what I have promised you and your descendants. But in the meantime, God, being God and being omniscient, is going to give him a behind-the-scenes peek because being here, God already sees all of this. Verse 6. God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others would, who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years, but I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. Abraham, here's what's going to happen. Something's going to come up, and your descendants are actually going to leave this land. Here's why it's not theirs yet. You're not enjoying it. It is yours, but you're not, your people are not enjoying it yet because some other stuff's going to take place. There's going to be an impetus that's going to come, a famine, and your people are going to go. They're going to be strangers, pilgrims, visitors, guests for a little while. But the country they're going to go in, it's going to turn. It's going to take a major transition. It's going to turn into slavery. And it's not just going to be, hey, if y'all are going to live here, you're going to need to work with us, work for us. No, it's going to be affliction. It's not going to be for a little while. It's not going to be like 30 years of, of slavery, 50 years of 100 years, 300 years. No, it's going to be actually 400. He uses a round number here, Stephen does. It's going to be 430 years of slavery and affliction. But even in this other land, not just in the temple, Sanhedrin, even in this other land, I'm still going to bless you because I'm going to come to your defense and I'm going to judge this other nation. And I am going to bring them back and then they will worship me in this place. Translation. Abraham, come here. 
you know I told you about this journey. Yes, Lord. I'm sorry about the whole Haran thing. All right, we're moving on. Abraham, there will be times it will look like my promises and my plan have failed. But even then, everything's on schedule. My schedule. I will make it happen. And Abraham's relationship with God is a pattern for ours. And so, would you write this final note this morning? Sometimes God's promises don't match our circumstances. Sometimes God's promises don't seem to match our circumstances. But they are still reliable. He may delay. In fact, can I just be honest with you? He often delays. He may delay, but God will always fulfill his promises. Isn't that the next to the last song we sang this morning? I'll stop singing about you when you become unfaithful and break one of your promises. It's never going to happen. Erica must have wrote that song months ago knowing that I was going to have this note this morning. Sometimes God's promises... I know you're always with me, Lord, but it doesn't, I can't feel you. There's somebody in the room right now, and you're frustrated. I just can't feel you. Lord, I know you promised victory over sin and over that, but right now it doesn't seem like that's what I'm experiencing. He's going to give it to you. There's things you need to do, but God's going to give it to you. I've been sowing to my spirit, reading my Bible and praying, and it doesn't seem like it's working. God's a liar. No, he's not. He may delay, but all those seeds you are planting, they will grow and come to fruition, and you will reap a great harvest. You just keep sowing to the Spirit. Keep sowing to the Spirit. Abraham's going to look like I've lied. When they go down there and that happens, i got a reason, though. So I ask you all this morning, why did God let that slavery happen to Egypt? I'm sorry, why did God let the Egyptians put his people in slavery? Do you remember that sin that they got punished for? Do you remember that sin? Which one was it? Trick question. They were not put in slavery because of some great sin. Well, what's God doing? It's all part of the journey. It's a part of the plan. God's after something. Heads bowed, eyes closed. We'll pick it up there soon. Lord willing, next week. I ask you this morning, is God initiating a relationship with you? If he is, don't fight. Leave the old life. Leave everything you think is important and come along the journey. It's the best thing ever and it's just getting started. He's got so much more. It's exciting. Eternity is going to blow your mind. Every moment is a pleasant Joyous, glorious surprise. There will be no sorrow, no tears, no pain, no shame. None of that. We're promised that. We don't know all that there is going to be, all the good things. but And it's just getting started. Right now, where you're at, watching at home, sitting here this morning, God's initiating a relationship. He's calling you. Join Him on an eternal journey. Be like Abraham. It is this simple. It is this simple, ladies and gentlemen. God told Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to make your name great. And Abraham's attitude was, okay, 
That's it. You getting saved this morning is you hearing and seeing God telling you, whoever believes and trusts in my son's death on the cross will not perish but have everlasting life. Everyone who calls on my son as their Lord will be saved. Salvation is you telling God, okay, I receive Jesus as my Lord, as my Savior. I take it right now. Join the journey just before we pray. Christian, is there something in your life that needs to die before you can take the next step and go deeper with the Lord? He's got some more. He's got more. Keep moving. Don't get stuck. And if you're here and it seems like a promise of God has canceled and it's not going to happen, maybe it's being delayed, I ask you to keep the faith. Keep sowing to the Spirit. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these folks' attention, Lord. I pray that you will drive it deep into us. Let us learn from the life of Abraham and how you initiated and how you found him in sin and how you were patient when he only went part way. And Lord, whatever needs to die within us, I pray that we would kill it, we'd starve it and cut off its life and its access to affect us. And let us, Lord, set our minds on things above where we are seated with Christ and our life is hidden in Him and with Him. We pray in His name. Amen. Let's take about five or six.